Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Roshini Sangani, and she's the founder of Asan Health in uh, Mumbai, India. Now she's a US trained endocrinologist who specializes in type 2 diabetes, uh, as well as uh, metabolic disorders for women, and founded this clinic where her focus is not on medications, but on getting people off of medications by using lifestyle therapy. Now, she's also gone on to get training as a personal trainer and in meditation, so it's clear she takes a very broad approach to help people um, transform their health. But as you'll hear uh, in this interview, she has a lot to overcome in terms of the, the the culture in India. Uh, whether it's the multi-generational families or the culture uh, sort of against protein and against meat and how she can help her patients overcome that and show them the benefits that she can get by uh, improving and reversing type 2 diabetes, improving PCOS, uh, helping with weight loss and so many other benefits that she finds uh, from low-carb intervention. She's a bit of a pioneer, it sounds like, in India. So it was fascinating to sort of get her... Um, story about how she came to be and how she integrates her practice with the Indian culture. So um, I think you're going to learn a lot, especially if you like Indian food, if you if you have, um, if you're from an Indian culture, or if you just like knowing how different um, ethnicities and, and different cultures approach low carb, and then I think this is going to be a great episode that you'll enjoy. And she has such a, a warm, kind, and generous manner about her that it's, it's hard not to really root for her, especially how she's helping her patients. All right, so enjoy this interview with Dr. Roshni Singhani. Well, Dr. Roshni Singhani, welcome to the Diet Doctor podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Brett. I'm so excited to be here. I've learned so much from Diet Doctor, so it's awesome to be here. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. We're excited to learn a lot from you today. Now, you know, low carb, we, we talk about low carb all the time and keto all the time. Um, but one thing that we have to realize is it's not the same for everybody, right? It's different depending on a person's personal beliefs and, of course, their cultural beliefs, how they were raised, where they're living. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you today. A, a U.S. trained endocrinologist in Mumbai dealing with the population in India, which I'm sure has some of its own challenges when it comes to low carb. But before we get into all that, give us a little bit of your background, how you came from India to the US to get trained, to back to India. I'm really curious to hear more about your story. Yes, it's been a, a globe-trotting life. You know, I had a record of every decade was in a different continent. I was actually born in Chicago. <laughs> And oh. yes, and uh, I grew up in the 70s in, in the States and early 80s and uh, was in Chicago till I was about 10. And then we moved back to Mumbai with my family uh, as a 10-year-old back in the 80s. And then I stayed here in Mumbai, finished my med school, and after that decided to come back to the States for residency and higher training. And uh, that was fantastic. I felt like I was able to get a lot of rigorous med school training in India and then apply that to a very nice structured learning environment in medical residency in the U.S. I was at Cook County in Chicago. And and that was a lot of fun. And uh, then I went on for my endocrinology fellowship uh, also in Chicago. And after a couple of years of practice, came back to Mumbai. And I've been practicing here since 2011 now. Well, right. As a, as a trained endocrinologist focusing um, on diabetes, on thyroid, 
also having a focus uh, specifically with women. Is that correct as well? Yes, a large population uh, comes to us with polycystic ovaries, you know, PCOS and irregular periods, basically, or abnormal mm -hmm. hair growth. And uh, they come because it's a hormone imbalance. And being an endocrinologist means I'm super specialized, as they say in India, or super trained in the hormones. Right. So when you were going through your endocrinology fellowship in Chicago, uh, did anybody talk about low carb? Did anybody talk about keto? No, <laughs> no, hmm. no. Yeah. Not at all. So this is something you had to learn on your own then. So tell us how that transformation happened and how as a practicing endocrinologist who was taught nothing about this, how did you come to realize, wow, this is a powerful tool I can use with my patients? Yeah, you're so right to catch that because I didn't even realize I had blinders on. I thought I was a well-educated, evidence-based doctor, and I used to take a lot of pride in saying I'm an evidence-based doctor. I used to put it on my LinkedIn profile, you know, and uh, uh, then, you know, what actually happened, and I grew up in that same 70s and 80s when carbs were everywhere, so I've eaten mm -hmm. carbs, lots of them, uh, unknowingly. And I don't think that being a doctor means you're really qualified in nutrition. I learned that also later. Um, so what really happened was in 2014 in, in India, I was practicing and I, gen I had a general preference to be low carb. I'm not really sure how that happened. I didn't have any health issues except for, you know, um, uh, just maybe some stress related, I think, because my food had been unchanged when I moved and there was nothing really going on when I moved from the U.S. to India, but my HbA1c spiked up to 6.1. Wow. So in the, in the pre-diabetic range, not quite diabetic, but certainly not normal, the pre-diabetic. I reached range. into pre-diabetes and I thought, this is not funny. I'm an endocrinologist, you know, and I had no issues in pregnancy, both my pregnancies, gestational, nothing. You know, I passed all the tests there, no diabetes there. So I was like, what's this? And I figured it was stress related. So I didn't really change my food patterns. I just went back and sort of cleared my head out and things and started exercising. But the low carb thing, I actually learned from a patient, uh, oddly enough, because it was 2014 and his HbA1c was 16.7%. Wow. That's about as high as it can possibly get, I, I imagine. Thought, I really thought, and he was walking, talking, and, you know, he had been sent to me by his physician saying, refer to endocrinologist, refusing insulin. So you do, what, you know, and so we had this chat and he said, no, doc, I'm not going to take more insulin. I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I had my blinders on and I was like, I've given you four different pills. Now the algorithm for treatment says I have to write insulin for you. Your pancreas must be burnt out by now. This is what right, we were right. trained to think, that diabetes is chronic and progressive. Right. And he said, no, I'll do anything. And I said, okay, fine. You know, I, I had some understanding of what my diabetes educators used to do in the U.S. because I wanted to learn that before coming to India. So I actually trained in diabetes education. So I said, fine, let me talk to this guy about his nutrition. And he was eating like four chapatis, you know, four Indian rotis or like Indian flatbreads per meal, which is wheat. I said, you know, you're on four chapatis and four uh, medicines a day and you're refusing insulin and your diabetes is sky high. So can you reduce your chapatis? And he said, OK, I'll do that. And he came back a couple days later because I was really worried about him. I called him back again sooner and his blood sugars had dropped from like being in the 350 range. He brought his blood sugars into the 180 range just by going from four chapati to two. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it's impressive. Powerful. These are some powerful chapatis. It's powerful chapatis. And, I, <laughs> and he then proposed the idea to me. He's like, Doc, I will go to one chapati. I want you to reduce my medication. And I was like, well, if his pancreas is burnt out, how's this going to work? But he did manage to bring his blood sugars down. So his pancreas can't be all that dead, you know? And, right. and I was sort of thinking this through in my head without any textbook guidance at all. And just basically listening to the patient passionately trying to convince me about it. And I said, okay, let's try it, but you got to stay in touch with me because I'm worried about you. And luckily, you know, he came back with one chapati and we managed to like avoid insulin all completely because he said, I'm just going to stop chapati. I don't need these. I don't want the insulin injections. Right. So that's a pretty powerful patient experience. And I like sort of how you reference it, that there was no textbook guidance. Like you were kind of flying flying by the seat of your pants to work this out. But what's the crazy thing is, is literature does exist for it. Like there have been studies written about it. There have been clinicians who have been doing it for, for while you were doing this and decades prior, but it wasn't really talked about in the medical community. So you probably felt a little bit alone. And then once you discovered sort of this low carb community, I'm sure there was like this, this awakening. So tell us about that. When you discovered other doctors are doing this other yeah, other dietitians are doing this and it's, it's a thing. It's not just something that was created. Absolutely. And I, you know, so there was the awakening. There was also a lot of guilt that, oh man, I have sat and had so many conversations telling them that insulin is the right treatment for them because they had such an emotional reaction. And, you know, you'd go to doctor meetings where there's a lecture series on insulin resistance and a lecture series on injection resistance. And, you know, <laughs> and now I realize that yes, I, I'm glad I listened to the patient and thank God there were other doctors who also believe this and other health professionals. And then I think when you start sending that signal out, you realize you're not alone. And so 2018 is when I found Dr. Jason Fung's work and diet doctor. And it, it, you know, so I kept doing low carb with patients. I was like, if you don't want insulin, we need to get you low carb. So that became a very big part of my practice. And I started to be known for that in the city also. And so nutritionists who were very interested to have a supporting doctor, because sometimes it's a mismatch that the nutritionist would want to do low carb to get them to lose weight, but they can't because the physician's medication list would cause hypoglycemia, would cause a low blood sugar reaction. So the nutritionist right, right. would be stuck. So it was nice to meet like-minded professionals and, and talk about this, you know? Yeah, such yeah, an important, such important point. point. And, in, you know, anytime anybody hears a podcast or reads a, a information, it's always for general information, not direct medical advice, but we have to sort of emphasize this here. Anybody who's on blood sugar lowering medications, who goes low, who goes low carb with their nutrition is at risk of having severe, dangerous, low blood sugar levels. And that can really turn people off to a keto diet or low carb diet saying, see, look, it almost killed me, but that's just because it works so well. It works so well that it can actually lower your blood sugar. So you need to come off or lower your medications. And that's where working with someone like you is so important. But again, not, not taught in endocrinology residency, Pro hopefully starting to be talked about a little bit more at the American Diabetes Association meetings, or maybe some of the European um, Diabetes Association meetings, hopefully starting to talk about it. We've got our continuing medical education course at, at Diet Doctor um, designed to, to instruct physicians about it. So you became sort of the beacon in India, it sounds like, for people to come to to work with because you had the, you had the knowledge that others didn't. 
So did that sort of help this, um, help you develop the practice even more as people referred patients to you? Yes. And, you know, putting ourselves on the map with the Diet Doctor website and the IDM uh, website, uh, both of those helped people in India who were looking for low-carb physicians reached out and contacted us. So the internet has really changed things. And, you know, to credit, there are many physicians in India. I've met now dermatologists, pediatricians, anesthetists, low carbers, you know, who understand this now. And so, you know, I'm yet to find more endocrinologists or diabetologists. There's this field in India called diabetology. And I'm yet to meet mm -hmm. people who are mainstream in treating diabetes come to this side of the low carb world, but there it is growing. And, you know, um, maybe it's sometimes that the physician has gone through their own health experience where the guidelines didn't work on me and then they were looking for answers. So sometimes it's been through their own personal experience. But yes, I think the community is growing and people are able to find us now thanks to the internet. That's great, yeah. And I think you're, I think you're right on that most doctors either have to have the personal experience or a profound patient experience or two in order to have that aha moment. And that's what we're trying to get away from, that it doesn't have to be that slow progress, but we can sort of disseminate the information, And which is why having you on a podcast like this is so helpful. And hopefully hopefully many endocrinologists will sort of take note. But as you've, as you've built the popularity um, of your practice and of using low carb, um, I'm sure it's not without its challenges. So challenges from within the medical community and challenges from the population in general. So give me a sense first of the medical community in, in India. Um, do a lot of people sort of look at you and think you're crazy? What are you doing? Like, what is this, this wild woman doing? Um, or is there more acceptance? <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you used that terminology because that's what happens. People have said, uh, she's okay, she's unconventional. And I'm like, you know what? That's like, it reminds me of Mark Twain's quote, is that if you're on the side of the majority, you need to reconsider, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But uh, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, maybe you should reconsider. So I take that as a compliment if someone says she's unconventional. Um, you know, but I actually, in 2014, after I learned from this Chapati experience, I uh, tried talking more and more aggressively, and I used language like reverse diabetes. And I, I gave a talk saying reverse diabetes in 2014, which was aimed at a physician doctor audience. And I got, I got some flack for uh, making bold claims. And something that was told to me was, what if someone hears your talk and suddenly eats a lot of mango because they think they've reversed their diabetes and their blood sugar goes high, we'll get into trouble. So don't say stuff like that. You know, it'll it'll take time. I'm okay uh, rubbing some shoulders wrong because uh, maybe this will groundswell from where the patients are coming. Maybe the physicians, and I, I feel it. You know, when a physician hasn't been trained in something, it's like that cognitive dissonance where it's right, really right. Un uncomfortable to process the conflict. Yeah, it's hard for people, especially physicians, I think, to admit that we're, we've been wrong in, in our teachings and, and we don't know everything and that we can learn new things and new treatments. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful understanding. Sometimes what happens is, you know, you get asked, well, where's the evidence? And I really feel a bit struggle, a struggle with that because, well, I, I don't have an RCT behind my name. And, you know, the tragedy is, like, if you look at the DPP study, the lifestyle intervention stops once your HbA1c goes into the diabetes range. There are no more lifestyle studies of scale sponsored by governments, you know, 
where you divided people into medication versus no medication. That was only done for the pre-diabetes population. Right. So how much evidence do I say if I have anecdotal evidence? Yeah, and that's a great point. You mentioned earlier that you put on your website, you had put on your website that you're an evidence-based doctor. But that can mean so many different things. And then all of a sudden, if you start acting on clinical experience and a compilation of anecdotal experiences, does that mean you're no longer evidence-based? Or are you, you, we have to admit that evidence doesn't exist for everything. And so it is, it is tricky, but now we are getting more evidence about this, um, whether it's from non-randomized trials or even smaller randomized trials. We're seeing the, the effect of low-carb at reversing type 2 diabetes, normalizing the numbers, getting people off medication. So hopefully you have more support now from a literature standpoint, although I'm sure for some of the old guard, it's never going to be enough. Um, it's never going to be enough evidence if, if they're really dug their heels in. Um, and that's a reality that we have to live with, but hopefully can overcome at some point. Yes. So in addition to um, some controversy within the medical community. I'm sure there's a lot within the population in general. But first, give us a scope of the 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 prevalence of type 2 diabetes in India and what you've seen since you've been there and kind of what you remember from when you were in med school and the difference between the two. Exploding, you know, again, uh, if I don't quote exact numbers, it's, it's exploding. Um, I just talked to a low-carb pediatrician who also has come back from Chicago and she's in India. And she said that she said one in three children is showing metabolic syndrome in India. One in three. One in three, one in three kids. 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 Wow. kids. So uh, there's going to be no room left for, for infectious disease. Non-communicable disease is taking over. You know, so really um, it's, it's a very big concern that the next generation is still being pumped with, with the, the carbs and the sugary uh, drinks and, and sugary treats. And I opened up a science book from my daughter's sixth grade, uh, you know, it was an advanced textbook, advanced textbook. And it says carbohydrates are energy giving foods. So the children are be still being told and the parents are looking at the science books and saying, well, carbohydrates are energy giving foods. So the knowledge at the grassroots level is still going at a way in a way that we have a very big problem with, with awareness. And so the, the prevalence and the incidence of diabetes is absolutely skyrocketing. Yeah. And tell me about what you experience in the, the Indian culture in terms of the food um, that is possibly contributing to this and may present a hurdle from, for helping people adopt a low-carb lifestyle to stem this rise in diabetes. Yes, and I think India is struggling with the same sort of dogma that the whole world fell into with the low-fat Everybody here is scared of egg yolks. The entire country is scared of egg yolks, I'd say, you know, except for maybe a small percentage <laughs> of communities that are okay with eggs. The majority of people are scared of egg yolks, even now, uh, including doctors. There is a large fear or misunderstanding around protein. And, you know, I, I give this example that what we've done in India is we've kind of put our ears across the Atlantic Ocean and said, high protein diets might harm your kidneys, but we didn't check the numbers where high protein is maybe two grams per kilogram. And when we do the math on a food recall with our patients, individual food recalls, they're touching about 0.4 to 0.5 grams. And if I wow, try to- that's very low. It's extremely low. And these are good homes, um, not well-to-do well, well, well -to -do homes. Any home you take, 
There is this protein malnutrition going on in all levels of society. And taking them to 0.8 grams per kilo, they feel I'm putting them on a high protein diet because it's higher than where they were. Wow, that is a big stereotype or a big misunderstanding for you to have to overcome. I mean, the uh, just for reference, the for our listeners, the RDA, the recommended um, dietary allowance for a minimum to prevent protein deficiency is 0 0.8 uh, grams per kilogram per day here in the U.S. In a diet doctor, we recommend a moderate protein diet, 1.2 to 1.7 grams per kilogram. So for people to be at 0.4 to 0.6 and feel like 0.8 is a high protein diet is a huge hurdle to overcome. Yes. So, um, I mean, how do you how do you go about educating people that despite what you've heard, low protein uh, puts you at risk for muscle wasting and sarcopenia and frailty as you age and is not um, is not optimal for health? How do you how do you educate people when the when the internal belief is so strong? Uh, it's, it's a big challenge. And what I end up doing is saying, looking at their symptoms, look at what they came to me with. They come to me with hair fall, with frailty, low energy, low immunity. They can't build muscle. They're trying to go to the gym and they're like, I can't build mm -hmm. muscle. And then I just have to make them zoom out. And I'm like, you know what? Today, go to your local supermarket. Go, and, you know, here we have open air markets and, you know, open vegetable vendors. I said, go to the market when it's crowded, of course, pre-corona. <laughs> But, you know, right, right. go have a look at a crowd of people and tell me how many muscular Indians you see. How many Indians do you see with any kind of muscle definition, except for the labor workers who are doing repair work of building construction sites? There's nobody else who has muscle. And so they're mm. like, yeah, yes, you're right. Um, or hair. I tell them hair is protein. You know, immunity requires protein. So when I show it to them through their symptoms... And I'm like, try it for a week. And the other uh, contra contradiction that they face is somewhere in the Indian nutrition books, I don't know which book, I need to go and like make those publishers retract that chapter where they have been convinced that uric acid will go up if you eat protein, that you will get gout. And everybody's right. scared of that. And I'm like, you already have a high uric acid. That's coming from your insulin resistance and your high carb diet which would get better if you move to protein, but they don't see it logically. I don't really understand where this fear of gout and uric acid has been through society. They're popping allopurinol and uh, gout reducing medications and uh, they're scared. They're really scared. So you have to go very yeah. gingerly and say, can you take, you know, in India, we have a lot of lentils and dals. Can you take instead of one cup, can you go to one and a half cup and just make small increments? So, and, and what about the percentage of um, vegetarians? So I read, I read somewhere that in India, it's the country, the second lowest, wait, let me phrase this right. Of the countries that are vegetarian, basically it is number two. Um, and what was it? Bangladesh was, was number one. But then I read somewhere else that uh, only about 30% of the country is vegetarian. So what, what do you see in your patients in terms of vegetarian and resistance to meat because of the social constructs of, of, around me? Yeah, it's a very important question. So when they are asking a population, do you self-report yourself as vegetarian? It might be 30% because the ones who call themselves non-vegetarian, they still might be taking. So the word here is the default here is vegetarian. If you eat meat, fish, or eggs, it's called non-vegetarian. Like you go to a fancy restaurant, the menu will have the veg menu and the non-veg menu. That's the way it is. Yeah. 
So it's it's just puts a paradigm where where even meat eaters don't call themselves meat eaters. They call themselves I'm non-vegetarian. Wow. So the default, the assumption is everybody's vegetarian. And if you're not, then you, you're sort of the special case, the minority. That's the culture. Yeah. Everybody who, who in India, there will be no confusion when you say non-veg, everybody knows what that means. And, um, yeah. you know, but even someone who self-reports as non-veg, when we do the diet recall, they're not all eating meat at lunch and dinner every day. They might make meat once a day. They might make meat in the house twice a week. And the rest of the meals are all vegetarian. So they're self-reporting as non-veg, but their protein intake is still as low as what we were talking about, 0.4 to 0.5. And it's almost a bit sheepish the way some of them will say, no, no, I only take one or two pieces of the chicken. I only dip my chapati in the gravy and I just take the curry flavor, but I don't, it's almost like they're apologizing for taking meat. Yeah, and so that's that must be the culture that's been around for for generations in India to to keep promoting that and and pass down from the elders down to their kids um, that they do have to be sort of embarrassed or apologize for eating and not just meat, but it's also chicken and fish um, that it, it plays out in all of that. So so when you are working with somebody with type two diabetes and you're educating them about the importance of a low carb diet. Um, and restricting the carbs, and then they have to fill the, those carb calories with something else. Or do you have to get creative with uh, vegetarian sources of protein and, and vegetarian sources of fat? I mean, is that really what you're sort of your balancing act? That is. That really is, because you have to work with the family. You know, still in India, usually people are cooking at home. That's the default. It's not still a sort of grab-and-go food culture. Um, so, you know, the working... People are maybe grabbing lunch from outside, but there's a very large tendency to cook at home. And uh, mm -hmm. so that helps because then you can start providing them recipes. And so we use a lot of the keto recipes from Diet Doctor. Now the, the database of low-carb vegetarian recipes is going up. Um, there are now books and books. So we like, you know, using the healthy fats. And coconut is a very big part of, it has a high acceptance here uh, because of the coastal climate. So coconut is something that we use a lot. Um, Tofu, a lot of Indians will, will cringe at the idea of tofu. Uh, they don't seem to like it. They find it bland. Um, so I try to get them to accept, you know, at least a non-GMO form of tofu as a good protein if you're going to be plant-based. Yeah, so, so tofu is an interesting one, and I'm, I wanted to ask you about that because really tofu takes on the flavor of sort of whatever you cook it with. So I'd imagine... There, you know, there's such Indian spices are such good spices. I'd imagine you could get creative with tofu, but it, it, my guess is, again, if if it if if sort of culinary guidance gets passed down from the generations, the grandparents don't know what tofu is. They never ate tofu, so like they're not going to educate their kids about how to cook with it. So maybe there is something lost there among the generations. I'd imagine. Uh, you, you're absolutely right, and you know, maybe another contrary example is when I said low carb to one of my. Uh, school friend's mom, she's a Gujarati, so pure vegetarian, which means no eggs. And she wanted mm. to have the spicy Indian flavor profile on her palate while trying to go low carb. So they made a Indian spice bread with psyllium husk, coconut flour, almond flour, flaxseed meal, and then all the Indian spices, you know, and it wow. was wow. super spicy. Is, are those are those ingredients harder to find in India? The the psyllium husk, the almond flour, are, are those 
kind of rare and, and, and that makes that a challenge for you to recommend that to your patients? Yeah, almond flour is very hard to get. So, and it's, it's quite expensive. So it's not something you would tell everybody to go buy a bunch of almonds or, you know, of course it's cheaper to make it at home, but it is an expensive item to buy. The coconut flour has a higher acceptance because a lot of Indian recipes use coconut milk. So when you're making coconut milk mm -hmm. at home, you're getting the coconut meal already. And then you just, that's your coconut flour. So that acceptance is there. Um, the psyllium husk, we do have uh, easy access to. And the flaxseed is a very popular after dinner sort of a snack, like a mouth taste change, you know, in your mouth after the end of a meal, people chew on flaxseeds here. So that's easy to find. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I've definitely heard a number of challenges that you have to face, but I've also heard some potential, um, potential benefits and, and things that can help and, and that people are eating at home and cooking at home, which is very different from the American culture where so many people are grab and go, especially for lunch and a large percentage for dinner too. But if people are eating at home, but then you have to overcome the, the cultural barriers of what they're cooking at home. Um, and things like flaxseed and coconut that, that can sort of open the door to giving um, healthier sources of fat to help reduce the carbs. But then let's talk about bread. I mean, different versions of bread are, are so prevalent. And like you said with your patient, having them go from four down to two, down to one, I mean, it, it must have been a, a struggle in the beginning, and you probably struggle with that with so many of your, of your patients. So how do you help them sort of wean off their bread to, to improve their type 2 diabetes? Oh, that's an important question. And, you know, everybody calls themselves a foodie. Everybody uh, likes that sort of uh, high that you get from your carbs. And that's probably global, you know. And so the Indians love their breads and their Indian breads or even their toast with the eggs in the morning. So again, I do a trade-off. So sometimes when you ask them, they'll say, I take two pieces of toast and one or two eggs. I'm like, can you make it one piece of toast and three eggs? You know, just swap quantities. So I try to create a barter system with them. Again, with the background goal of, I'm here to help you get onto as little medication as possible. So how do you want us to do that? That you should have no diabetes and no medication. Clearly we have to work on food in a big way and being from the, you know, being from the endocrine perspective, I look at the other hormonal effects of, you know, sleep, exercise, stress management, not only hammering them only on nutrition so that they're not feeling overwhelmed with the volume of changes I'm asking from them so that it becomes a little manageable in terms of habit change. That's a great point. We, we spend so much time talking about food because it's something that we encounter multiple times a day and has, has such a profound impact on our health. But these other aspects of our health also play into insulin resistance, blood sugar management, stress hormones. So I saw that you got trained as a personal trainer and in meditation. And that, that warmed my heart because I also went and got trained in, in uh, personal training and behavior modification because these are tricks that we don't learn about again in medical school and in residency. And we think, oh, that you know, the trainers can handle that, the health coaches can handle that. But how it's so much more powerful when it comes from a physician and when you can help coordinate the whole plan. So, but tell me again, you know, I, I'd imagine there are some barriers to personal training in the culture in India. Like you said, there aren't muscular people walking around. People probably don't go to the gym on a regular basis. Um, it's not part of the culture. So what are some of the hurdles you have to overcome with the Indian population to get them to start exercising? Yes. Uh, again, a huge piece there because the first reaction, because we don't have a 
fitness culture yet, although it is growing, you know, uh, on the optimistic side, the, the fitness, uh, uh, what do they call those uh, influencers? We do have Indian influencers now, a growing population of influencers who are representing the fitness industry now, which is a great thing. And uh, so, but I say, look, you're tired. You're not feeling energetic. How do you, it's just really uh, sort of the behavior modification aspect is put their symptoms on the table and show them how if they want to have better insulin resistance, you know, better insulin sensitivity, building muscle helps that. And in India, one other very big thing that happens is we live in joint families and a lot of us have seen our elderly grandparents fall and break a bone and never recover from a broken hip or a broken you know, uh, leg, that that was almost a near fatal event in their parents' or grandparents' life. So I'm like, to prevent those falls and fractures, you need to build muscle now. You're not going to be able to build it then when you've had the fracture. So it's going to help with your diabetes. It's going to help with your energy levels and fitness and strength levels. And it's going to help you prevent falls. And it's going to help you get off medication. So. <laughs> right. Right. So sad that it would require an example like that, but that is a very powerful example when you see it firsthand. Yeah. So let me ask you, have, have you seen anything in terms of medications, in terms of interventions that works as well for type two diabetes as a low carb diet combined with exercise? No, no, no. My prescription profile no. has been shrinking. I don't remember the last time I wrote an SGLT2 inhibitor a GLP-1 analog, long-acting insulin, pre-mixed insulin for type 2 diabetes, TZDs. I haven't written, sulfonylureas I didn't use at all, but even all of those other medications, I haven't prescribed them in a very, very long time. It's metformin and lifestyle change. This has been yeah. the biggest shift in my practice. Although I'm trained, you know, they say, give me the other medication. I'm like, no, if you can't change your lifestyle, maybe you should change your doctor. I mean, that's so powerful to hear. Someone who's trained in endocrinology, specializes in diabetes, you know all the medications better than anybody, but you don't use them. You don't need them. And you're still seeing success with your, with your patients despite having to overcome a lot of stereotypes and a lot of cultural barriers. You're still seeing that success. Uh, that's incredibly powerful. And not just with the type 2 diabetes. We started off by talking about how you also specialize in women's health. So tell us some of the effects you've seen for women specifically. What are the challenges you see with them and what are some of the successes you've seen? Yes. So the same insulin resistance is affecting young women um, uh, at the level of acne and at the level of irregular menstrual periods, at the level of infertility. That's a big uh, concern. Uh, of course, weight, you know, and not to, I don't want a gender stereotype here, but it does tend to come in that the younger women are more and more worried about their weight, especially at the time of marriage. You know, I will more often see the average Indian family bringing in a daughter of marrying age saying she needs to lose weight before she gets married. Not so many parents bringing in their sons, although the weight issue is on both sides. You know, it's unfortunately a bit of a dogma or a stigma, uh, expectations of, of what people should look like. And it's, it's not the way we want to endorse things, but it's on the woman's mind, whether I like it or not, you know? Uh, so these are some of the challenges. Um, and another specific issue that comes up is because of a uh, historically patriarchal culture, the woman uh, ends up being a centerpiece. She's the one cooking for the entire house. 
And they unfortunately sometimes take on this role of, I have enough energy to cook specially for my in-laws and for my husband and for my kids. They have three different needs. And then on top of that, if you want me to go make low carb for myself, that's not happening because everybody else wants their carbs. Yeah. So the importance of bringing in the whole family together is, is even, I, I mean, I always talk about that in terms of getting your family on board when it's just your spouse and your kids. But then when you have in-laws on top of that, because the multi-generational family living together, that makes it that much more challenging because I'm sure they're like, ah, oh, we've been eating this bread for, for 50 years. Why are you telling us to stop now? No way. It's, it's, that's a lot harder than telling a 20 year old, 30 year old that they need to change. Um, well, so that's even one more hurdle you have to deal with. Yeah. And so again, I have to kind of relate to them at their level and speak from a place of self-love. And that's where the spiritual aspect comes into play is, you know, you're trying to give them what they want because uh, you're trying to, you care for them. And it's not like they want to harm you and sort of build that compassion where you allow yourself to create a bubble for yourself and say that, you know what, once you transform yourself, it's inevitable that the others are going to take notice that your health is getting better and they're going to start looking around at you that what's she doing? She's doing something. <laughs> yeah, that's so powerful that having success be its own educator, basically, that watching some person with their success can educate others. Um, and that's something we like to do at Diet Doctor by, by promoting the success stories on our website. Um, so I wonder, you know, is that something that... that you can start or that we can help start even in India to help promote success stories so people can see, oh, they're, re they're reversing their infertility or their PCOS and they're getting off their diabetes medications. Look at all these examples. It's not just some crazy concept that goes against my beliefs, but is actually happening. Like, is there is there room to start that sort of groundswell in India? Definitely. And, you know, at a very small level, we're taking testimonials from patients one-to-one, -one, saying the same thing to them as, you know, there are probably a hundred other women out there who could benefit from your story. And a lot of people are stepping forward because they want people to benefit from being able to do this yourself, let your body start healing itself. And, you know, a, a happy story is a lady who had PCOS. She had irregular periods, five, six months at a time, she would not have a cycle. And so she and her husband had kind of given up trying on for a baby. And she was working with us on diabetes reversal. And so she went low carb, she started intermittent fasting. And then five more months, no period, but she had back pain and she showed up at the MRI office and they were like, did you forget to tell us you're pregnant? Because we see a baby in there. She's oh, like, wow. yeah. She didn't know. <laughs> she didn't know. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned intermittent fasting. So actually, let, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, in, in, in the United States, the culture for a number of people had become, you know, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack, this constant snacking and grazing. Has that been the same in India? And has that made it um, a challenge to talk to people about time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and the benefits those can have on insulin resistance and weight and so many other metabolic markers? Absolutely. It's so big. A, it's such a huge barrier because uh, especially with the diabetes prescriptions causing low blood sugars, everybody's brainwashed into eat because otherwise your sugar will drop. And, you know, right. uh, it's culturally expected that wherever the person with diabetes goes, they need to be fed on time because otherwise their blood sugar is going to drop because they need to take insulin. And now you see that whole thing backwards. You're like, no, if I stop giving you insulin, you wouldn't need to keep eating, you know. Um, so it takes some time for people to buy into that. 
And doing the fasting C-peptide test really helps them because that test shows to them that I can tell them your pancreas is making insulin. So you don't have high blood sugar because your body's not making insulin. It's because you're eating too much food. So how are we going to set that back into balance if you keep eating all day? So it takes, takes some time and I have to really make it simple and go across literacy barriers, health understanding barriers. And Dr. Jason Fung's uh, analogy of the train pushing people inside the crowded train, that picture really helps because in Mumbai, we have crowded trains. Everybody relates to that picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. And in, in Los Angeles or in like San Francisco, people just wouldn't get that analogy, but in, in Mumbai, it works. Um, so just to clarify um, for the listeners, C-peptide is a, is a measurement of your insulin, but only the insulin that you are making. So if you're getting injected with insulin and you measure an insulin level, it's a combination of your own insulin and the insulin you're being treated with. But the C-peptide is specific for the insulin your body's making. So if you're, if you have a detectable C-peptide, then your, your pancreas is making insulin. So, you know, you can sort of safely, uh, lower the insulin as you're changing the, the, uh, lifestyle and the nutrition. Okay. Well, you've certainly educated me a lot about the the hurdles that you face in India and some of uh, some of the opportunities that you're facing and the impact you're having on your patients. I'm sure is outstanding, including the impact you're having within the medical community. And really, I mean, you're it, it sounds like where you are in India is sort of like where Dr. Westman or even Dr. Atkins or some of the the pioneers uh, in the United States were, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, so you're, you're blazing a trail and I'm sure it's not easy, but I applaud you for, for your efforts and the impact you're having on your patients. If you were going to give just some basic advice to people from an Indian culture who like Indian food, who, who live in a multi-generational family, what would be sort of the, the best advice on a way to get started safely and, um, efficaciously to help improve their type two diabetes, their PCOS, their insulin resistance syndromes? So, you know, I like to start where they are. So, you know, if someone asks me, what's the perfect diet plan that you're going to give me? I will say there's no perfect diet plan. My clinic does not have a one size fits all diet plan because all the four people in my house, me, my husband, my two daughters, we all eat differently. <laughs> so I can't get three people to agree with what I like. So I'm not going to expect to convince you to eat my way. So we start where you are and we ask you to start a list of where your carbs are at and where your, what are the proteins you like. So again, there are some cultures in India that do prefer meat and it's, it's inherent in their ancestry uh, based on their religious you know, background. They are okay eating meat. So I'm like, let's embrace that. Let's go for grass-fed. Let's go for free-range, pastured, you know, hormone-free, eggs, meat, fish. Let's do what your culture allows. If you're vegetarian, we start listing out, again, these are your carbs. We make a list of all the carbs that they thought were healthy and low fat. And we say, we're not doing low fat. Let's cut all of that to half today. And then in place of that, we'll add your proteins from your preferred list. So we really co-create the preferred protein list for the clients. Remove the drugs that cause the low blood sugar. That's our role is on day one for type 2 diabetes, remove the drugs that cause the low blood sugar so they're safe to reduce the carbs. That's the doctor's responsibility. That's from the nutrition standpoint. Sleep. We have a lot of gadget use, a lot of late night screen time, which is messing up people's sleep. And then the tiredness is coming from low protein intake. It's coming from low water intake, but it's also coming from 
horrible sleep. Instagram is in India too. Facebook. So, <laughs> so everybody's on Instagram. So they use that as their way to fall asleep. And that's really very bad for insulin resistance. Sleep apnea, I think in India at slimmer uh, body profiles, we're seeing a lot of undiagnosed sleep apnea. So if we do a screening mm. for that, with the, they're like, I just thought it's a snoring problem. I've been living with my room partner for decades and thought it was normal. I'm like, no, we probably need to check if you have bad sleep apnea because that's making your diabetes worse. And this is happening at much right. slimmer uh, body frames than uh, Caucasians. Uh, stress management, again, we have a very spiritual backbone, but a lot of the next generation is, has lost contact with a very rich spiritual tradition. So sometimes just asking them what their beliefs are, and maybe if I have permission with them to invite some small med mini meditation to just connect back and center. And, and I think if we as doctors emanate to them more of a loving environment rather than this punitive doctor kind of wet racking, you know, you're not eating right and the patient's relatives are complaining, patient's not eating right and we're just scolding the patient all day long versus you sort of give out that energy that you're safe and accepted and loved and I want you to feel the same about yourself. That, that vibration helps offset so much stress. That's such an important point and something I think that is overlooked because people are sort of uncomfortable themselves maybe with that advice. So giving it to others is a challenge, but boy, it sure can go a long way and, and help all the other recommendations you're making fall into place so much easier. So I think that is a, a wonderful message um, to, to conclude with. If, if people want to hear more about you, learn more about you, where, where can they go to find you? Uh, so I think the uh, Instagram way is, is where people go these days. So it's my first name and last name at, at, at Instagram. And uh, we have a website that's called Asan Health. The word Asan means easy in Sanskrit. So easyhealth.com, Asan, A-A-S-A-A-N, health.com. Very good. And we'll include those um, in, the, in the links of the, of the podcast. But it's been a pleasure. I've really learned a lot and enjoyed this conversation. And um, I look forward to hopefully collaborating with you more in the future and seeing all the wonderful things you're doing. I would love Thank to you. help you, you with that. Thank you so much. Thank you.